This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number 625, and we welcome back Dr. Ralph Moon, talking about ATP use and misuse in the restoration industry. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we're able to continue doing the show. Please thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio Plus. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org, and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at hb2021-america.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus at particlesplus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at graywolfsensing.com. TSI Inc. at tsi.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine at healthyindoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations. Go out to Restoration Global Watchdog Pete Kinsigli who was first to identify the statement which must appear on EPA-registered pesticide labels as, quote, it is a violation of federal law to use this product in a manner inconsistent with its labeling, unquote. Very important. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, May 7, 2020, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's trivia question. How much energy is potentially released from one ATP molecule? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Ralph Moon, PhD, is a building scientist with more than 35 years of consulting experience in the areas of duration of loss studies, risk assessment, project management, industrial hygiene, and indoor air quality assessment. Dr. Moon has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and papers and is a frequent expert witness on insurance-related claims and projects. He has a unique background that combines extensive field experience seminar development and presentation, research and legal services in the IAQ building science and disaster restoration field. Ralph, welcome back to the show. Hey, Joe and Cliff. Thanks so much for having me be on the show. 
I appreciate great, it. Great to be here. Great to have you, Ralph. Hey, let me first, before we go to the slides, I want to quickly set that up. ATP, uh, use and misuse in the restoration industry. What led to your interest in this and to doing this type of uh, research? I was attending a meeting with the uh, a Siri meeting with, for the uh, Research Council. And during the course of the agenda was listed uh, an, an evaluation of whether or not they wanted to include ATP testing as a standard recommendation for remediation. And so I, I was unaware of this being on the agenda, but as I listened to the conversation, I realized that, you know, that ATP was an incredibly sensitive method. And I thought taking an incredibly sensitive method to determine cleanliness in a residential home was a, was a bit unusual because I thought that at least for the thousands of homes I've been in, the least the thing I would want to do is use a really sensitive method to measure cleanliness. But nonetheless, I, they were proposing this at the, at the conference. And I said, well, you know, uh, have you ever been in a home after it's been remediated? How quickly does it become unclean by pets and just normal activity? I thought, is this test too sensitive and are there other elements that might interfere with a good interpretation? And so uh, after the meeting, I think I dissuaded the, or persuaded the committee to maybe reconsider that. But I thought, you know, the only way to really be persuasive in this industry is participate and to write an article about it. And so I did some reviews over the course of about, you know, six, seven months and, and found that there were many people who were and expressed concern about the way that the ATP swab method was used. And so it culminated in a, in a paper, which you've got now, and it's been published by Siri in the Cleaning Journal. Fantastic. Let's go to the slides, John. We'll jump right into this. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about misuse, uh, use and misuse in the restoration industry. We've got the Cleaning Industry Research Institute logo there. And Ralph, you're now with NV5. I, I'm having trouble keeping track of that company name, Ralph. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, but anyway, let's go to the next one, John. Okay. There's the bad moon rising, truth and accuracy and moisture measurement. All right, next. And here's the ATP. So, this is a good one. Go ahead, Ralph. Yeah, this is not to say that the ATP swab method, which has been around for probably 30, 40 years, isn't a great test. It is. But I think the question is, is it applicable outside what we've listed here as the, the pharmaceutical industry, the medical industry, and the food industry? And the point is that uh, I think you have to be cautious about that uh, because the other element that's relevant to our professionalism as restoration people, and I use it in the broadest of terms, is do we know what we're doing in the application? When it's used in the pharmaceutical industry, there's a very specific reason why they want to use a good test because you don't want to contaminate a product that might cause some liability. The same thing's true in the medical industry and the food industry. So when we then apply this to other, in other ways, you know, do we, is it being applied properly? And do we understand the, the, the context with which the results might provide? So it's a great test, but I'm going to examine is it appropriate for the restoration industry? And if so, where? I think a lot of it is also with these other three industries, 
they're using it on specific surfaces as well. And, and we've got a lot wider range of surfaces that we deal with in restoration. But I'll let you get to that in just a moment. Let's go to the next slide here, John. Sure, sure. So um, the, the basic theme of the ATP test is an understanding of what is ATP. And this diagram is a very simplified version of something called the Krebs cycle, a, a, a series of molecular reactions that occur in all cells that generate adenosine triphosphate, which is the energy producing molecule and organic molecule in all living things. And so it's a very basic description of a very complex cycle, but nonetheless, what it really means is that when we consume food, we convert these to smaller molecules that can be transformed to provide mobility, to see, to think, for our brain to operate, and also to build other molecules that can be then used to re-support uh, re broken pro proteinaceous tissue or fatty tissue or provide sugar, uh, which is, of course, a basic building block for a lot of organisms to grow and reproduce. So the point is that ATP is a very common, it is the most common energy element of all living things. And it's the basis for which this whole test is, is based on. Okay, let's go to the next one, John. So what's really unique about ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is that in the course of its utilization in living cells, it has three phosphate groups that can be taken off and during this process of hydrolysis, release energy. And on the right-hand side of the diagram, we have it in kilocalories, I think. Yeah, uh, kilocalories uh, of energy. And the cell says, this is fabulous, Greg, I can now take this energy and utilize it to do all the different things that the cell does, the organelle does, and the organism does. It's all driven by, uh, by these packets or uh, packets of energy. It also can degrade from, not degrade, but uh, phosphorylate from AD, ATP to ADP, releasing one phosphate, and ADP to AMP. And as a result, it success, successively releases energy packets that can, that can be used and in the course of cellular metabolism can be regenerated back to ATP. So it's a remarkable cycle, hence called the Krebs cycle, that we create and utilize ATP to run all cellular activities. That's the common element in the test. It's, it's, the, it's the benefit of using it in so many industries, and it's also the detriment in the restoration industry, the fact that it's very, very broad and analyzed for ATP. Okay, next. All right, this so, is an example. Um, example of different types of meters, and there are a variety of them, and from the analysis, they all work very well. I think the challenge is, as you can see in the diagram, is that using different meters on the same molar concentration of ATP doesn't necessarily result in the same amount of light that's produced. And of course, that's how the meter works. It expresses the, the concentration of ATP as an expression of light energy. So in the diagram, we've got four different meters exposed one, two, three, four, five, six different concentrations of ATP, and they've plotted out the expression of energy as light energy as those dots. 
and they don't, they're not all the same. There's, there's a couple interesting things that seem to be common to the meters, and that is in the upper range, that's the upper part of the diagram, they tend to flatten out. It loses its sensitivity mm-hmm. at higher concentrations. And that the, the expression of energy varies between meters, hence they are not all, they are generally parallel, but they're not the same uh, amount of light energy. So, for, for, so if you're using an ATP meter for the swab test, certainly you must be consistent within using the same meter. You can't switch, mix, mix and match. Otherwise, you'll get some discrepancies that won't seem to make sense. But, you, but the theme of this is that certainly there's a challenge with high concentrations and there's just differences in how the meter responds to different concentrations of ATP between different meters. So this is kind of good and bad, huh? Well, I think that what it, re- what it requires the user to think about is that if I get a high number, does it necessarily mean that there's a direct relationship between that and the amount of microbial contamination? And it also means that you need to stay within the same realm of that instrument for successive measurements if you want to compare them, but not to mix and match from one study to another or one instrument for one site and one for another to have some relative comparisons. You should stay with the same instrument. And that would be important in if you ever had to go to court, for instance. Well, you know, I think that's the, that's the theme that I have because I'm always under the scrutiny of explaining what I did and substantiating what we do. And I think as we all ascend in this business of restoration, I mean, maybe that's just a philosophical position for me, but I assume we all have a general tendency to want to continue to improve in what we do. And part of that is a responsibility to know what we're doing, especially when you're introduced to new techniques. Mm-hmm. And so when I explain the use of the ATP method to insurance representatives, for example, they have no idea what it is. So when the restoration contractor integrates ATP testing in their test results to show that it is or is not clean, they're just totally confused. And so as a result, they might balk at the interpretation. And so it's now our responsibility if we're going to use it to be able to explain it, both its benefits and its detriments. Well said, Ralph. Let's go to the next one. So one of the curious things about living things is that they all share the production of ATP. The challenge that we have in the restoration industry is that generally when we do testing, post-remedial testing, we're usually looking at fungi, growth of fungi, because that's the obvious result of moisture and any type of cellulose product. The challenge is that when we consider um, how the ATP method is sensitive, it's sensitive to two very distinctive groups of living things, bacteria, known as prokaryotes, and eukaryotes, which include fungi, algae, insects, us, elephants, mites, all kinds of things that we can find. We won't find elephants, but we'll find lots of mites and, and, uh, and uh, other types of, of uh, microbes that can, we may not be aware of, but we can't see them well enough when we take that swab sample. So the point is that it's a very broad brush 
And so knowing that distinction also means there are consequences, which we'll talk about in, in uh, resolving slides. When, when you say us, are you thinking uh, like skin cells? Well, they definitely could have, have, have ATP in them as well. And what's interesting is, you know, for us in the business, that's the, one of the most predominant dust-containing particles in a residential home is skin cells because we're sloughing them off all, all day long. So you're absolutely right, Joe, is that that's another interfering problem that you know, if I was on, in, on, a, on a, not a jury, but if I was opposing counsel and I was examining a person who wanted to use ATP swab uh, samples, I would ask them that, you know, could there be any interference from other, other contributing living things besides just mold in your analysis? And of course, it could include a wide variety of things that you simply were unaware of were present in the swab. Another quick follow-up, Ralph. I noticed you did not mention viruses. Can you touch on that because it's such a big issue right now? Or will that come sure. up later? I know what, let's mention it now because it's kind of in the, in the same category of prokaryotes, eukaryotes, and other things. Viruses are neither. And when, I mean, as a biologist, I always saw viruses as active depending, I didn't say living, active, depending on which side of the cell membrane they're on. I look at a virus as much, I'll use a, a, a musical comparison, a very well-qualified um, orche orchestral leader outside of a beautiful music hall with a 120-member orchestra, but he, does, he can't get in. He's just outside the music hall. If he's outside the music hall, he can't do anything. He's just sitting there. That's what the virus does. But get that director inside the music hall. He takes over all 120 musicians and begins to direct the entire activities of the, of the, of the hall. And that's what happens with viruses is they have the genetic capability once on the interior of the cell membrane to direct and redirect all cellular activities. So that's when they become dangerous because they're now directing it for their purposes, not for that of the benefit of the cell. Does that make okay. sense? Yes, it does. Let's go to the next one. So this was really interesting. Uh, yes. is it, it was a comparison of the swab technique when there was an introduction of different types of common disinfectants. And the way this was done is they took the ATP swab and they put 10 microliters. Now, uh, Cliff and Joe, you know that's a, that's a little tiny bit. 10 microliters of a disinfectant with 10 microliters of a known concentration of ATP, then they measured it. And the types of cleaning, the basic elements of these cleaning products are simple things like ethyl alcohol and bleach and so forth. But the point was that there was a very strong difference as we compare the control, which is right in the middle, that one says control no product at 4,788 uh, uh, ATP measurements or relative light units, as compared to the other disinfectants added had a profound capacity to diminish the the, the light units as a result of its interaction with the 
um, with the swab. So the point is that in the restoration business, we know that we use very strong and a wide variety of different types of disinfectants during the course of our work. And so by knowing that, we have to be very cautious on its application to interpret a swab sample as clean. Is it really clean or has it been has there been some interference in, uh, introduced through disinfectants? And so uh, when I, this was just one, this was the 3M product, I think, but there were four, three others, all of which expressed the same types of interference as a result of being in contact with disinfectants. And I thought that was really valuable to know because if you're on the stand and you're asked to interpret the results of being high or low and someone asks, did you consider if the swab interacted with any disinfectants, you'd have to have an answer for that. And of course, it could have a profound effect, as you can see, for example, with the bleach and, um, and this clean side product, which are probably another bleach or ethyl alcohol product. So that, that's, that's really important. Very. Ralph, if, if, if I may. Um, ahead, m- 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 many years ago, this is probably around 1987, 1988, uh, a, you know, someone from the restoration industry was trying to get me to kind of buy into ATP testing. So he came to Pittsburgh and he visited our training center. And in this training center, we had a room that we would flood and dry and flood and dry. And we probably mm-hmm. flooded and dried this room about 40 or 50 times. And what happened was he ended up, uh, we ended up uh, using the ATP and we went over to this area that was, you know, flooded and dried many, many times. And we came up with a reading of, I don't know, three or 400, which was relatively clean and which would make sense because we flooded it with clean water and we, we dried it rapidly. And I just happened to have had a gallon of a disinfectant there and this disinfectant happened to be a halogen the same as chlorine but a different halogen this was an iodine it went off the chart it literally maxed that meter it was it it read in in the millions in the millions okay and it was at that point that i gave him back his meter (laughs) i gave him back his swab (laughs) and uh yeah for me that was it i mean i'd seen all i needed to see uh you know, per, pretty early, but um, yeah, and, exactly and, and right. that's a fabulous story because uh, Cliff, it, it underscores the idea that when we walk into someone's home or we restore a structure, we have no di- idea of its history. And the point is that that if we understand the potential interferences, then we realize we kind of pull back on the confidence we have in the results. But knowing that is is of tremendous value. So at least you're thinking realistically in terms of the expressions that you put down in your, in your papers and, and, and results. Right. I got there, a text. Yeah. I'll go ahead and ask. Uh, that, sure. They're asking, um, this appears to be an ATP comparison while the disinfectant is still wet. Um, are there any comparisons after it has dried? I, I didn't have it. I, there's nothing that I could find, but I think one of the things that this discussion has prompted is, and perhaps someone will be initiated to answer more questions. And there's always more questions associated with the things that we talk about, especially in the restoration industry. But we need that. And I tell you why we need that is because, you know, when you, 
uh, uh, I know Pete always talks to me about how I'm representing the insurance industry, but I'm, I'm really not. I, what I do understand, though, is their reluctance sometimes to embrace a technology that hasn't been fully explained. And, you know, th- there are more benefits probably from ATP testing than there are detriments, but it, you have to really demonstrate it. And so your, your question, Joe, underscores the idea that there's so much more to understand that could be implemented to research projects that would explain that. Cliff, well, disinfectants aren't equal. You know, some of them, uh, such as alcohol, are going to evaporate completely. Others are going to leave behind residues. Residue. And those residues can right. be uh, positively charged. Sometimes they can be negatively charged sometimes. And that can they can be sticky and they can attract different types of of soil. So I think another thing that would need to be tested, you could test wet, you could test dry, but you need to test dry over some period of time as well, because there's going to be an accumulation, uh, you know, particularly those right. that, that, that are sticky. Yeah. All right. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, next... somebody has a high... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ralph. Oh, something that has a high vapor pressure, it may be less likely to stick around than some of the lower one. And so that's, that, that's a great thing to, to evaluate though we just need someone to do that okay here's our next oh, one. okay so so the, the the papers that looked at um testing atp swab on various materials i think commonly uh resulted in favorable evaluations of stainless steel not always but most commonly they thought this was a good surface to do testing on and of course with the pharmaceutical industry and medical industry, you see a lot of stainless steel surfaces, but that's not always the case depending upon the wearability or the wear or abrasion on that surface. So sometimes in the research, they, they, they reported some surprises. And although it looked okay, the ATP analysis sometimes showed higher than expected results as compared to other surfaces. So the point is this, that we don't really know precisely the conditions with which we're swabbing with a little cotton swab. Sometimes it's somewhat predictable. And others see on the far right, we don't know what those holes could harbor in terms of contaminants, whether or not they would be actually taken up by the swab or not. But nonetheless, it's a variable we don't see. And hence, in our results, we may not interpret properly. But we can't necessarily depend upon all surfaces that we think about and conceive as being smooth and clean as being so. And that was especially true with melamine when we talk about later. Ralph, if if I could comment on the stainless steel. In 2001, we moved into a new facility and I finally built my own little lab, you know, from scratch and got everything that that I wanted. One of the things I wanted was a stainless steel, um, not only a stainless steel sink, but I had the stainless steel countertop. And it was about 25 right. feet, feet long, and I was pretty proud of it. It was all, all one piece. And then I remember coming in one morning, and we hired a maintenance company you know, to do the cleaning in the building. I came in one morning, and it was entirely rusty from one oh. end to the other. And this was, you know, I was in the building probably less than a week. And the reason it was mm. rusty is this person cleaned it with a strong bleach solution. So just chlorine, chlorine right. bleach will etch and damage yes. stainless steel. And that's probably one of the reasons, uh, you know, that, that you encounter different problems with it in different areas or inconsistencies, because a lot of people clean right. with bleach and believe it or not, bleach is destructive. 
to stainless steel. Right. Yeah. And that's also true on for stainless steel on ships at sea. Right. Is that the, it can be attacked by the chlorine. You're absolutely right. And so what, what that underscores is, again, you go to a site, you do some swab testing after restoration. You have no idea the history of exposure to various types of corrosive chemicals. Mm-hmm. It may look right but it may not necessarily attain cleanliness to do your satisfaction. Great story. So another application, and and by the way, this is the one that really got me going. I was in the field and I was at this country club and they had had a roof leak and the restoration contractor was there and he was using ATP testing, swab testing. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Tell me about that. And so he proceeded to tell me about how he was using it more and more often. But he was up in the attic swabbing trusses. I thought, oh, could that be right? That doesn't seem right to me. I mean, that's such a porous material. We have no idea of its history. How do you know what you're swabbing has anything to do with the event that happened in the kitchen? So, so of course, this, these are pictures of the, the general porosity of of uh, wood cells cut cross section and longitudinally, and there's plenty of space there to harbor all kinds of, of contaminants and so forth. And the point is that there certainly are some materials that are un- inappropriate for molecular analysis of, the, of cleanliness. And I think wood is them among them. And in the in the publications, wood was always one of the most variable surfaces they tested for when they're using ATP test. Let's go to the next one, John, then we'll go to halftime after this. Okay. So in this, in this uh, interesting comparison, we've got on the left-hand side, we have a, a known amounts of ATP being placed on different surfaces, melamine, vinyl chloride, stainless steel, wood, and this uh, a butadiene styrene resin. And then on the right-hand side, we have the traditional auger tube method of quantifying microbial growth on the same materials. And what they found is that there was good correlation between ATP and the auger method, basically, you know, normal fungal, fungal sampling for viables. So they were relatively parallel, but what was distinctive was the values found for different surfaces. And so that was one element that came out is that if you want to quantify the presence of ATP or fungi for that matter, that one of the biggest variables was the roughness or the brazenness of the surface. And that's again, something that's a variable that we had to really consider in the restoration, restoration industry if we're gonna use ATP testing to quantify relative cleanliness. Interesting. You know what, let's sneak one more in here. Go ahead, John. Okay. Hey, Joe. But yes, b- b- before we do this one, I, I need to uh, ask Ralph to, to touch on something. Ralph, when I read the paper, um, the, the most take-home thing for me was the difference of ATP that could be in different organisms. You know, when you compared mm. one organism to another that, you know, some would have more ATP than others. And because they had more right. ATP, it's going to be a higher reading on the luminometer. And it looks like it's more contaminated when it may or may not be. So I was just wondering if you could cover that for the audience, because I thought it was really, really important. 
Well, that's a really good question. Again, as a biologist, that intrigued me too. So the literature says that in general, prokaryotes, bacteria, are just much less sophisticated and have a much less capacity to diversify and drive cellular activities and hence have less ATP than that of eukaryotes. So that being said, uh, in our business, we have fungi, eukaryotes versus bacteria less. But one of the interesting elements about a water loss is that there are dynamics in the growth of prokaryotes, prokaryotes versus eukaryotes during the course of a, of a water loss. At the beginning, it's profoundly bacterial in nature. Within hours, we have a growth of bacteria. And then with time, as those resources are used up, then there's an emergent of emergence of fungal activity and then nematodes and mites and all kinds of things that might also offer ATP in their analysis. So the challenge for the restoration contractor, when he takes that swab, he has no idea about the general proportion of ATP he might get because it would be dependent upon the population of living organisms, bacteria versus fungi and other living things during the, the different courses of the of the restoration period. If they're early, they might be more higher in bacterial content. It might be lower in ATP. If he waits a couple of weeks and there's a progression to more eukaryotes, it might be higher. So those are all elements that bring in variability and maybe create some confusion as to relative cleanliness from time to time. Okay. Well, let's go to halftime real quick here, John. We're going to stop. Thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds with the second half of our interview with Ralph Loon, ATP use and misuse in the restoration industry. Okay. Our marquee <laughs> sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, at AIHA.org. ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research at CIRIscience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at IICRC.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9 through 11 at HB2021-America.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. 
Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at graywolfsensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at tsi.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back. We've got Ralph Moon, Dr. Ralph Moon. Ralph, uh, John, let's jump right back in and finish up these slides. Then we can have a nice round of discussion. Okay, Ralph, what do we have here? So um, certainly one of the elements most common in certainly water restoration projects is encountering different degrees of wood deterioration. And some of the analyses done on the ATP swab method revealed that uh, deteriorated wood had much higher concentrations of both ATP, ADP, and AMP uh, as compared to uh, deteriorated wood materials and so, uh, and in, in deteriorated wood materials. And the point is that, why would that occur? Well, certainly one reason why things may be higher is because the wood is undergoing some fungal uh, uh, deterioration and growth. And it, it may not necessarily, it depends upon the stage with which you were doing drying as far as active uh, growth. But nonetheless, uh, that surface is going to have a, an immense opportunity to support uh, principally fungal activity that you would then swab and quantify uh, during the course of your of your testing. And it might skew the interpretation as to what was clean or what was not clean. So the point is that depending upon the dryness, the, the moisture content of the wood, and whether or not the materials are living or dead, is that that decayed wood can offer a, a very, a very quite variable surface to do ATP testing on. All right, next. So I think one of the most interesting aspects of the process Besides all the variables we've talked about as far as wood and age and prokaryotes and eukaryotes and so forth, is the fact that there's incredible variability in how we swab. And I found this true in deposition testimony of people just taking swab samples from mold, is they all have different ways of doing it. Sometimes they scrub and sometimes they roll and sometimes they use a square foot and sometimes a square inch. So it, it really varies. Now, this has become even more critical in the ATP test, because it's such a subtle and remarkably sensitive method. So for example, the elements that were found to create variability were like, how do you drag the swab across the surface? How much pressure do you put on the swab? And what's the moisture content? We, we know that in mold sampling, the moisture content has a lot to do with how much we can pull off the surface as well. Uh, are we breaking any microbes and spilling out ATP if we disrupt the cell membrane? Uh, how much mass do we pick up depending upon the surface? How efficient is the removal? Of course, we want to be efficient, so we may tend to want to apply more mechanical pressure, which has its consequences. Uh, the surface roughness, and then finally, the concentration of organisms that we capture. So those are, I think there are like eight variables there that are uh, have profound influence on the concentration of ATP. And I think what I suggested is that 
you know, you don't want to go into uh, a, a testimony uh, without having an answer for that. And what I suggest is to just have a set up a standard procedure that you, among your employees, you agree upon. It may even be on a little laminated card in terms of the surface area, general pressure, the use of a glove, for example, and, and have some agreement. So when someone raised that question about the possible variations that come to mind with swab sampling, you say, well, we had a protocol and here it is. Here's the laminated copy and here's the technique we use. And then boom, boom, boom. That's very difficult to criticize. But without that, then that becomes a variable that opposing counsel are going to attack you. And I, I hate to introduce this idea of the legal side, but that's the side I'm thinking about <laughs> when I walk through the threshold of a, of a house. I'm thinking, hey, can I explain what I did? Can I substantiate my actions and, and the techniques I used? So that's why uh, this would be something that would then, if you had a agreed upon protocol, would diminish this particular element of capturing the sample. Okay. So uh, there are some services that have been shown to be, you know, very suitable for ATB testing, and, and to no surprise, there are often those associated with pharmaceutical, food, and medical industries. Um, what was interesting uh, with regard to say melamine coated cabinetry is that despite their appearance and general uniformity among these materials, the vinyl, mostly PVC and melamine coated cabinets were highly variable as compared to less so for stainless steel and glass and so forth. But it just goes to show that, uh, you know, the way we look at things with the unaided eye uh, can be remarkably different when we use a very specific molecular-based test to evaluate their relative cleanliness. Uh, also, high-touch surfaces were, were, are good, uh, but they're also more prone to surface abrasion and changes. So okay. these are the ones that, for me, I'd recommend are candidates for ATP, ATP testing. And I think that's important. People want to know where we can and, you know, what's best areas to use it, areas where maybe it's a little less likely to be useful. Let's go to the next one, John. So then right. there are Here we have the that, second part. <laughs> right. So, yeah, this is a little bit bigger group, primarily because of its, its general absorptivity, non-uniformity of surface, um, tendency to uh, capture contaminants which can't be necessarily extracted with a swab and so forth. And uh, these are very commonly found in a residential setting, not necessarily in a manufacturer setting, but uh, they give you a moment to pause. Now, does it mean you can't sample for ATP? No, you can do whatever you want, but you've got to substantiate the appropriateness of the result based upon maybe opposing counsel knowing something about the surface, perhaps not being, maybe being absorbent or maybe being affected by other types of, uh, um, of contaminants. So, so you're allowed to sample what you wish. The question is, can you face the music when someone questions you about the legitimacy of taking that sample? Yeah, I think when I read the article, that was the thing that really kind of stood out to me. Any worn surface, suddenly everything changes, bro. So a, a way around that 
It's just have a plan in that you recognize, you know, and if you have it, remember, we used to do this in mold sample. You had to write a plan. And we don't do that too much now, but, but it definitely for ATP testing uh, is that you should have a plan in mind, maybe before you get there on the types of materials that are good candidates, those that are not and why, and the general spatial relationships of where you take the samples so as not to introduce the concept of bias in the samples. But if you're, if you're being questioned, those are all obvious areas you're going to be, really, to be really careful about that you have an answer. All right, John, let's go to the next one. And perfect. Any final thoughts on the slides? And then we're going to go to the roundup, Ralph. Okay. Let's, I want to get a couple text questions real quick here before we get the uh, Restoration Global Watchdog. And we've got John Downey also online, I believe. Um, as far as uh, the, you know, you're not saying don't use it, just be cautious about the pros and cons when you do use this. Is that a pretty accurate summary of things, Ralph? Yeah, I, Joe, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I'm not in a position to, to, to tell anybody what they can and cannot do. All I can say is that be prepared to explain what you did uh, because you don't want to threaten the integrity of a good restoration project based upon the inability to explain the sampling results. And I've written articles about how a good restoration project can go bad in the eyes of opposing counsel depending upon the timing and the circumstances of the rest of the occupants after good work has been done. So this is just an example of something you should be cautious about. Not that you shouldn't do it, but you should have answers to explain what you did and why. One more um, from Ed Light here. His opinion on the use of ATP in sanitizing for COVID has changed. What's your take on this opinion on the use of ATP I guess, after sanitizing for COVID has changed. What's your take on this, Ralph? Well, I think that as long as the method is not anticipated to quantify the presence of the virus, that's fine. I mean, it's really a surrogate method to evaluate cleanliness of a surface relative to a need. And the need is to remove contaminants and viruses from the surface. And it provides an indirect method to do that. But it's not a direct method of quantifying the presence or absence of a virus. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Any final questions? Um, I, I guess just one. It would seem to me, Ralph, that this method with the variability, particularly of, of how you swab, would be subject to bias by the person uh, that, was, that was doing it. That It would seem that I could influence the results if I wanted to do that. And, you know, I just wondered whether you would agree or disagree with that. Well, you know that, that among a, a knowledgeable person uh, for both ATP swab testing and mold swab testing, we can, we could, we could purposefully modify favorable or unfavorable results depending upon how we swab and where we swab. And so I guess the point is that um, if, if I had defend this type of method in a court setting, 
I would want to have established how many samples and where I sampled before I walked through the door. And so I wasn't trying to influence things when I got there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we all know that if we had a sewage loss in a home and we had to do swab testing and we wanted to show whether or not there was cleanliness, depending upon if I take my swab and put it under the sill plate and jam it under the corner, I'll get a positive result almost always. And if I, if I don't want to do that, I might go on a, a vertical framing member and lo and behold, I wouldn't get anything. So, you know, that, that would not be my intent, but certainly there is an opportunity for bias in any type of swab sampling method for both mold and for ATP. And so, uh, the intent is, you know, what's your purpose? Is your purpose as a contractor, do you want them to fail so you can do more work? Or do you, do you, is your intent to do a representative sample to show that this did pass based upon my representativeness of my samples and where I selected those to be, to be taken? So that, that's a personal decision. It's an ethical question, I think, too. And uh, these tools provide a basis to do the analysis, but it's in the it's in the hand of the of the, of the sampler to make that decision. Thank you. All right, let's bring in John Donny, the executive director of the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. John, do we have you? Yes, I'm here. Great to see you online, John. Any any questions or thoughts with Ralph? Well, first of all, thanks for uh, having me, Joe and and Cliff and Ralph. As always, you do a, a, a fabulous job. No, I actually, as I was watching and listening, uh, it really, this show developed kind of the way I hoped it would. Um, first of all, and, and I don't think it was covered a lot, but ATP measurement really wasn't designed for restoration or wasn't initially looked at for restoration work. It was looked at uh, it, this is after the, the medical and, and the others that Ralph said, but in the industry, it was looked at for uh, assessing school cleanliness before and after cleanliness. Uh, and so there were limited surfaces and they looked at different types of uh, measurement methods and found that ATP did best. Uh, but then it was kind of um, utilized, it was kind of borrowed from that purpose and moved into restoration work. And I think what's really important is that what, what Ralph has done in this is made clear that, you know, we're, we're taking something that really hasn't been studied well in the area of restoration. And we've got people that are utilizing it there that are, that it's, pro, it's usefulness is probably not been validated and yet people are making claims for it that they shouldn't. So, and, and um, I've talked to two or three of the other Siri scientists about uh, Ralph's article and uniformly they praised it for bringing that information out that uh, uh, Richard Shaughnessy in particular, I was talking to him the other day and he said, you know, it's really important that people realize that the limitation, not only the value of ATP, because there is value, but the limitations of ATP. And um, as, long as, it, 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 as long as we stay in that 
realm where we understand both, we're, we can move things forward. And, and a big thing for, for Siri is we feel that it's really important that there is more that we, that we test and evaluate our processes more, not less. And so it's useful in that way, but it's not useful to, you know, bring up, bring back in Cliff's last question and Ralph's answer. It's not useful if it's being used in a manipulative way. And it can be pretty much any testing procedure can be. So kudos to you, Ralph. Great, great show. And uh, I appreciate uh, that Siri could be a part of it too. Thanks so much, John. And, and we appreciate uh, Siri and the sponsorship and uh, looking forward to Healthy Buildings 2021, Healthy Buildings America 2021. John, real quick, when will that be? Honolulu, Hawaii, November uh, 9th, 10th, and 11th. I can't wait. I understand Ralph can't wait either because uh, he's planning to. Uh, present on this uh, uh, this paper that he did, if, if unless things have changed. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's for those who aren't familiar with healthy buildings. I think most of the people that uh, tune into this show are. Uh, it is a uh, ac- primarily and historically an academic research pro- conference for the. Um, uh, indoor air quality and indoor environments. And uh, what we are forcefully doing this year is making this a research to practice and also practice to research um, uh, conference. So we're going to have a robust presence of practitioners there. We're going to have a robust presence of uh, uh, practitioner oriented papers. So it's, um, I'm, I'm really very excited about it. As you all can imagine with COVID, uh, it's been a roller coaster ride. It was originally scheduled for early June, and then we moved it to August, and finally we moved it to November. And we, we feel confident in it being able to happen face-to-face in person in Honolulu in November. We're, I'll put it another way. We are determined that it will be a face-to-face conference. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. And thanks for joining us and being a sponsor of IAQ Radio. Uh, we, we appreciate it. i got another text question real quick here for you, Ralph. Since ATP yeah. sampling only demonstrates the concentration of ATP on the surface after cleaning, it has limited use for documenting that microbial remediation is complete. Do you agree with that or not? Uh, I think that it goes back to that swab, the uh, efficiency with which you captured the contaminants with the swab and attempted to quantify it. So there's, there's an element of variability. I think that the, the first answer I'd say is it, it's a representation of cleanliness, uh, but keep in mind that there's variability associated with the collection method. Okay, let's bring in the restoration industry global watchdog, Pete Consigli. Pete, do we have you? Yeah. So I'm going to comment now as, as the industry historian. And before I comment, I got I want to verify something. Um, what was the window of the time that the, uh, the school, the ATP study was done on the schools through uh, 
I guess Siri and ISSA. What was the window of time in that? Uh, I believe the they began their work. Am I, can you guys hear me? I'm not sure if I. Yes. Yeah, we can. Okay. Hear you. No, you're you're fine. Okay. Um, I believe it was they began their work in 2007. I think it was okay. 2007. 2007. I, I don't need to know anymore because I'm going to throw you under the bus now, John, but in a very nice way. <laughs> no, I, I'm letting you know the curveball is coming so you could duck so it doesn't hit you in the head. So if we go back to the last show that we did with Gene Cole on IQ Radio, um, I brought this question up to Gene because in the, in the late 90s, after you sold Clean Facts, John, then you went to Steam and Demon, you kind of dropped out for a while, or you were more involved in the carpet cleaning end versus the restoration. But in the 90s, ATP was first introduced to the restoration industry in Northern California, in Sacramento, and in the San Francisco Bay Area. Myself and many other people were involved with it. People like David Bierman, Peter Sirk, Jim Holland. I can keep going. And uh, we did a lot of testing with work that was being done up there uh, for both insurance work and self-insured work through counties the counties and districts that were uh, self-insured with sewage backflows into people's buildings and under what they call kind of the good neighbor, the good Sam policy, they would take this up when it was a, uh, they would take cleaning and some remediation when it was refused under the terms of insurance policy when it wasn't covered. And the ATP was originally used in the industry for sewage to determine the efficacy of the cleaning process they, they talked about it maybe in a clearance capacity, but it really wasn't. It was just they looked for certain criteria, uh, certain organisms, were they there, weren't they there, et cetera. I don't want to get into a technical discussion on that. But that's when it was used for several years. One unit was introduced and a second unit was introduced. So for a while, there was a Coke and Pepsi challenge. Now, this, this is where Dr. Cole comes in. When Dr. Cole left the EPA, when for years he was working with Mike Berry, he worked for DynCorp uh, in the Research Triangle era. This is before he went to Brigham Young. And it was well known within the industry that one of the uh, people that were using the, uh, the technology in restoration remediation funded some research at DynCorp, commercial research, my understanding to check on the efficacy of the use of it. And mm. that research was never published. Now, I actually asked Gene about this at the Siri conference in Miami of Ohio the last time we met before the pandemic, and he vaguely remembered it. Now, I'm the watchdog, and you know I love Gene, and I love all you guys, but I'm going to speak my mind. I believe that the reason that that research was never published was because it did not get the results that would have been desirable to the company that funded the research. And there's nothing wrong with that. That happens all the time. If it's government research, and I have experience with this over the years, government, if industry puts up a million dollars, the government will normally match it. And then they'll put it out to bid, which is normally academic universities, particularly if it has to do with mold and water. It's all the Southeastern Conference organizations. They'll bid on it. They'll do the research. It gets published under FEMA you know, or under one agency. All right. That's a that's an industry funded with government. But when private industry does it, they they have the right to decide what they want to do with the information. And if it's if it's favorable and it's credible, they'll probably publish it. 
I can only assume that it didn't get the results, and, and that's okay. And that's fine. So it was used. Now, let me tell you where I think the industry went sideways, and this is the part where I agree with you, so I'm going to pull you out from under the bus. Well, can I make a comment? And, get, and give my buddy Ralph the huge attaboy and a pat on the back, because it's true. What happened was is that if it, if it would have remained as a internal efficacy checking thing where guys didn't necessarily weren't charging companies for it, it was kind of part of the internal process. It may have been okay, but that's not what happened. What happened is the industry evolved. The standards came out. They started using it for mold. They started using it for other stuff. They didn't have an understanding on it, which is exactly the point of Ralph's study. And it got used and abused. And there was a movement in the industry to actually have it used as a, as a, to be adopted as a testing procedure for mold projects. Okay. And it, right. fortunately, the leadership in the industry, when all this was done, and Cliff knows, and I don't want to put the names in it because it's irrelevant, but that's a true statement. It never was done for that because it wasn't appropriate. And there were in, industry insiders who were technically knowledgeable said, no, that, that, that would make the industry look really stupid to do that. So it, it's gotten out of hand. And I think Ralph's study and the really good work that Siri's doing brings this stuff back that it's, we're not against the use of it. It's the use and application, how people manipulate it, and what kind of impressions that the insurance companies, property managers, the school district, you know, whoever is ultimately paying for those results what the, uh, what the ultimate implications of that are. And so, I mean, if, if we if we stay on the high road and we have good, clear, you know, use the research and we're clear about what we're doing with it, it has its application, just like everything. It's a tool in the toolbox. But unfortunately, when it gets right. manipulated for whatever particular reason, then it's not good. And, and it stains the industry and, and people, people, they lose their, they lose their, uh, I don't know, their trust right. in wanting to, uh, you know, listen to the advice of oftentimes of people that are very qualified because they're confused right. and not sure who to, who to listen to. So for whatever that's worth, Thank I think you. it was important to clarify that cliff, you know, put what you think is appropriate in the blog and I'll, you know, I'll review it before it goes out and I'm comfortable with it, but I think that kind of information needs to be out because historically people should have a, a clear understanding of these issues before they move forward and then do, you know, do whatever they're going to do. I appreciate all, right. all the callers that have called in and all the questions I knew this was going to be a good, lively show. I think um, the other thing, John, and uh, we're going to, uh, uh, Cliff, Cliff and me, we're members of Siri, Ralph Sack. We're going to override you on this. We're going to, we're going to not ask you. We're going to tell you what we're going to do. So well, what we're going to do with the article, you have already given the, the, in a, in a uh, PDF form of Ralph's article. And uh, Cliff and John, you got to have faith. We're going to include the, the, the full article. Some of the stuff that Ralph used in there were some graphs and charts that are in the article that he put his PowerPoint in order to do his presentation. But we're going to include it as part of the blog so that whoever wants can get the article. Now, I think this will be really good for Siri because, you know, Siri now has done some changes in their membership. And, uh, you know, now only people who are subscribers or people who are members of Siri get the magazine. And the magazine needs to really have a much broader distribution, in my opinion. And this is something that uh, Patty Harmon CNR did for years. They would send out the PDFs and it would get out there, would encourage people to, uh, uh, you know, uh, subscribe to the magazine or whatever. So we're going to do that. I think that's the right thing, a good thing to do. We're not going to do the PowerPoint because that PowerPoint 
is going to be, Ralph's going to build on it for Hawaii and also our winter break next year with AML. So I think the PowerPoint uh, is not available, but I do think that the article should be. And unless you really jumped up and down and stood on your head, you know, I don't see any reason. I think that would be really in, in the benefit of the audience, of Siri, the industry in general. And uh, I think that would be really good. And I want to close with this, Mr. Cliff, because I have the questions here. I have the preliminary notes, and you didn't ask the one final question of Ralph, which I thought was great. I remember the old Johnny Carson, you know, like that with the Karnak, you know, he'd have in the last question, you know, Ed McMahon, you know, it was in the mayonnaise jar in the Flunk and Ragnall's porch. So, Ralph, here's the right. question. Here's the question. Uh, as a, and you, you partly alluded, but as an expert witness, how would you testify to the benefits of ATP? It's been said that one sample is not a statistic. How many samples do you recommend? You kind of already talked about it a little bit. Here's the question. Would you, you, Ralph Moon, expert, use ATP as part of your water damage investigation? All right. We're going to let Ralph answer that. Well, We're also going to give John Donnie a chance in just a moment. Go ahead, Ralph. Okay. So, so let's, let's first talk about the benefits of ATP and restoration theme. Um, first of all, it's fast. It's done in the field. It's relatively modest in cost. Uh, you can implement the uniformity and collection of the protocol. It can be reproducible, and you can depend upon it. So all those things are benefits if I had to defend it. And the second part was, you know, would I use it? I think it depends upon a couple of variables. First of all is the types of surfaces that I've got to look at in the restoration project. Now, I have been involved with some uh, – water damage cases in pharmaceutical facilities, in dental labs, in dialysis facilities, all of which were really critical to us to assure cleanliness, those, uh, those areas would be, I think, a very good application. But if, for example, I encountered aged or worn surfaces, a harsh environment, kind of like what uh, Cliff was talking about, where materials were exposed to strong bleaches or oxidizing agents that etch surfaces, if it was associated with um, significant legal or health risks, all those things would influence the use of ATP. But at the, at the end of the day, I would want to make sure that I, was, I, was, I could defend my results to substantiate whether my decision of the restoration was not fulfilled or was fulfilled. But those are some of the variables I would think about. Thank you, Ralph. And John Donnie, yeah. I'm going to give you the final word, buddy. Oh, the final word. You see, Donnie, that, that, that started a clean fax, and here you are with Siri. You got the final word, and I yield the floor to my good friend and Buckeye brother, John Donnie. Would somebody mute that guy? No, first of all, about the article, I, I, I we – we pulled a PDF and sent it to Ralph for a purpose. We felt that this is a, believe me, I, nobody knows but other than me and Ralph how much work went into <laughs> getting that paper published. It was, it was a, it was a marathon. We got it done though, and, and as I said, it's it's receiving a very very high acclaim in um, among the the series scientist folks. So um, since that is Ralph's decision to make it available through the blog, I'm, I'm not going to stand in the way. I'm not going to actually endorse it because we have policies that we're working on to try and make revisions on. 
you know, so uh, let, let them live, so to speak. Uh, the other thing, thing the other comment, I'll, I'll try and be very brief on this, that I, I wanted to make uh, related to the information that were that was the, the use in the 90s in the restoration industry and then the, the um, there was apparent research that was done that was not published. Two things. I think that indirectly that research did have an effect because people knew it was being done. And when it didn't get published, people knew what that meant. Um, that, you know, the, the things that they were doing were not um, replicable, were not uh, valuable uh, for uh, assessing restoration effectiveness. Uh, but as a publisher, especially a publisher of technical information, I really wish that it had been published. I really wish we could get more of these studies published. I understand why we can't, as Pete described, uh, but it, 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 you know, maybe only by getting more research done under the auspices of public, uh, uh, whether government or universities or public foundations, uh, those are the places where we can get this data uh, out to people. And that's really, that's the core purpose of Siri mm -hmm. is to get this information out. So with that, I've used my last word. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Mr. Donnie. Thanks, I want Don. to thank Dr. Ralph Mooncliffe. Did you have a final thought? I, I did. And, and I appreciate it. Ralph, Sorry. Th there's one thing that uh, I would like to know. You mentioned this agar stamping. Uh, if you could just kind right. of comment it, I think people would, you know, just like to know a little bit more about it. So if you could give us just a short. Oh, okay. So um, I usually use a traditional uh, viable sampling method, but agar sampling is there are a variety of different agar plates, you know, MEA plates, DG18, blood agar, and so forth. This is a tube. It's a tube of agar that's, that comes out extruded and you cut it and you fit it in a plastic sleeve so you can hold it and press onto the surface of something you take it off you put a cap on it and you analyze it that's typically what it's called it's a they call it a sausage it's the auger sausage cut it off handle it put it on the surface and take it off so you it have says to incubate surface it? you have to incubate it it's absolutely uh but it, it's something that is I, I have never used it i my first exposure was in a uh, a uh, federal lawsuit in Texas where opposing opposing side used this auger method, but I, I saw it implemented and uh, it allows a one-time opportunity to put uh, a sticky auger material on a surface and evaluate its cleanliness. Uh, I, I don't use it, but it, it's used by many other people commonly. I'd never heard of it. I did some research. I found a company in Germany that already had it, you know, kind of, uh, yeah. this already mounted in the containers and they had different types. And it seemed that, you know, for the small, you can probably buy an incubator for less money than you can buy a luminometer. And, uh, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you'd be able yeah. to, to do this and have, um, you know, have some sort of validity to it, you know, depending on the type of auger that you right. use. But I right. thought that it made a lot of sense. And that was the second takeaway I got from the article. That was good. And I, right. I, I, Thanks. I, Thanks Cliff. Okay.
All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Ralph Moon. Uh, very interesting show. A lot of activity. My great, pleasure. Uh, my, my pleasure. Always pleasure to have you, uh, Ralph. And uh, we'll be back, I'm sure, in the not-too-distant future. I also want to thank the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, uh, my co-host. Uh, John, you got to have faith at the controls. Mr. John Diney from Siri, the executive director. Of course, the Restoration Industry Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners and our sponsors will be back next Friday. We've got uh, Lisa Brozo again back next for the ACGIH. We're going to do a little update on COVID and a bunch of issues related to COVID next week. So we'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.